Welcome back to the Pre-Match Point podcast, a show brought to you by Luke James, Dan Lockwood and Callum Ison. Once again, we have returned with a double pivot. I'm joined by Callum. Callum, what has caught your attention over the past seven days? Well, I mean, it's probably best to kind of talk about the, the item of clothing that I'm wearing. I've got a Lakers um, top on. So obviously this week, um, big moment for the LA Lakers and the Laker Nation as they claimed their 17th NBA championship with LeBron James claiming his fourth and probably cementing himself as one of the great, well, I actually think in basketball, the greatest of all time. Um, a superb performance um, on Tuesday evening late Tuesday, uh, late Monday night. And to be honest, I don't, after kind of uh, the Lakers beat the Clippers, it was kind of always in my head that the Lakers were favourites to win it and they kind of did what they had to with some brilliant performances from Anthony Davis. And actually, Rajon Rondo really performed well in the final game of the series. Uh, but <laughs> once we get me and Dan tied down to coming back to an episode together, um, I'm sure we'll talk about the, the NBA and kind of everything that surrounded it. Uh, There's a lot to unpack, obviously. No coronavirus cases during their um, bubble, which is a massive, massive um, benefit. And kind of, you have to give them a massive round of applause for how they've kind of dealt with that. And also uh, LeBron James has kind of asked about how he thinks the NBA has kind of impacted on social justice in America. And it's been a massive part. And he kind of gave praise to both the NBA and the MBPA. So there's, there'll be a lot to unpack and we'll do that down the, down the road when Dan is back. For sure, yeah. There's so much going on kind of in American sports and of course that was such a such a big win kind of in terms of LeBron James's personal career and for the Lakers as a whole. Um, the thing that caught my attention this week is kind of what the Maple Leafs, the Toronto Maple Leafs have been doing in the off-season because they've signed a, a ridiculous number of, of, of free agents once kind of the restricted period open. They've signed Bogosian and VC over recent days and they've really transformed the roster and kind of looking at it from a broad perspective and James Myrtle has been saying this for, for the Athletic too, is that this, the Maple Leafs on paper now are probably a worse team than they were when their season finished in, in the playoffs or kind of in the preliminary in the preliminary round to the playoffs. Um, but they've got so much more depth, especially defensively. I think kind of from the blue line, it's definitely going to be better for the Maple Leafs next year. So who knows? Maybe maybe Toronto can kind of push for the Stanley Cup next year. But there's still so much going on kind of in the NHL. It's going to be a really, really, really interesting off-season, especially when we don't quite know what's going to go on with, with, the, with the AHL and the minor kind of season next year. Um they're the two things that kind of caught our attention kind of for the start of the show. But of course, it's been it's been a while since we last spoke. But the biggest storyline, of course, we're currently in the international break too. But the biggest storyline at the moment is certainly Project Big Picture, which is a proposal by mainly Manchester United and Liverpool that aims to shake up the future of English football. Callum, what did you make of the proposal? What kind of were the main talking points here? Well, uh, I kind of we've spoke about this on Twitter or, or in private, both of us, and I think we have kind of very differing, well, not very different opinions, but we do have different opinions on this. Um, in my eyes, there's parts of it that, even though it's called Project Big Picture, I actually think part of it is very, very narrow-minded. But uh, I actually think, on the whole, I don't actually really hate the idea. Um, the main pits that kind of been picked out by people, obviously, would be the the kind of restructure uh, of the leagues in England. So it, it's been spoke about that the Premier League would drop down to eighteen teams, 
with the three uh, EFL leagues uh, containing 24 teams as, as usual. But, I mean, the big talking point, I think, has been that Liverpool and Manchester United have put through this idea that the top six teams in, in the league and then three teams are kind of the most long-standing. So I think that was West Ham, Southampton and Everton would basically create the voting system, which currently means the voting system at the moment is that every team gets one vote and it has to be 14 teams have to vote in favour of something for it to be implemented. Whereas that would change, it would be the... Uh, only the top six and then them three teams listed would get a vote so in my eyes i don't think that's a good idea um but i think that's maybe the only part i really disagree with but i think that's purely because it is you can't call something project big picture and kind of try and paint yourselves as the good guys when you're actually trying to take the power away from the teams and kind of giving yourself more power especially when there's a lot of talk anyway about kind of this European Super League that's kind of been rattling on for so many years. It kind of just feels like it's kind of a movement towards that in the fact that the six, them top six teams could vote for them to move on to a European Super League and then no one else in the league could do anything about it. For sure. There's been a lot of noise kind of about these proposals over kind of the last couple of days, but it's important to kind of pick out the main points that we're talking about here. So the Premier League under these proposals will be cut from 20 teams to 18 teams with the Championship League 1 and League 2 staying at 24 kind of clubs per league. Um, the bottom two teams in the Premier League will be automatically relegated to the Championship with the 16th place team joining in kind of the Championship playoffs. The League Cup and the Community Shield would be abolished under these kind of proposals, which caught my eye, especially the Community Shield, given it's only one game a year. Um, parachute payments would also be scrapped if you're relegated from the Premier League. This is one of the main bits that has been kind of a big draw for clubs in the EFL. A £250 million rescue fund would be made immediately available to clubs in the Football League, plus 25% of all future TV deal revenue. Um, £100 million would also be paid to the FA to make up for lost revenue. And kind of this is the main kind of controversial piece of the proposal it would see nine clubs given special voting rights on certain issues based on their based on how long they've been in the premier league of course this would stand to benefit the top six plus three additional clubs at the moment as you say callum that would be west ham everton and southampton i mean there's as i say a lot there's a lot to unpack here um i i don't like it to be honest i don't like the suggestion that we cut the league from 20 teams to 18 teams simply because you get in a tricky situation where you have to relegate an additional two teams at one point and for me as someone who has, has watched their team being relegated and has been there and been through it it's not something that i think is particularly fair to supporters nor the players involved because essentially it, you could finish what kind of not in a terrible position in the premier league one season and still be relegated and I feel like the financial repercussions of that for the club would be much, much bigger than any benefit that otherwise might happen as a result of these proposals. And kind of my main issue with this kind of agenda as it's kind of been put forward is that if the Premier League wanted to provide funds to struggling clubs in the Football League, and there have been reports today as we record on, on Wednesday afternoon, that some of the clubs in the Championship could go bust by Christmas, according to kind of Sky Sources, I mean, the Premier League could do that anyway. They could help those clubs if they really wanted to. It shouldn't be attached, as you say, Callum, to this kind of proposal that would see the top nine gain an exclusive and exhaustive number of kind of voting rights 
on a lot of issues. So yeah, that's kind of my immediate thought on it. I'll, I'll throw this over to you though. What do you think of the idea of cutting the Premier League from 18 teams, uh, rather to 18 teams from 20 teams? Is this something that would improve the Premier League? See, I don't actually really hate this idea. I, I kind of take your point that it is really, it would be unfair on obviously the two teams that do get relegated. But I think there is ways around this. And we both kind of spoke about this, um, as I said, separately. Um, and one of the ideas I said is instead of relegating five teams in one season, you could just have two different seasons where you relegate four teams and kind of have a way of kind of working out how that would work uh, and then kind of taking it from there. But we kind of, you see there's like an 18 team league in the Bundesliga and that is kind of, it is, well, it's not kind of, it is the structure that the Premier League would kind of turn to. What, uh, if this was implemented and I don't really think that's uh, it's not awful obviously the two bottom teams go down and then you have a playoff system so the t uh, the third team in the Bundesliga two comes up against the third uh, third bottom side in the Bundesliga and a lot of people would say it's unfair it's creating an extra game for the, the third team to come up um, but it basically would it basically would replace the playoffs anyway and also, if you kind of study the Bundesliga and kind of since its implementation in like 1992, I believe, it's only on nine occasions that the Bundesliga 2 team hasn't won that playoff. So it's actually not that unfair. It, obviously, on any given day, some, anything could happen. Um, you could, that team could have a really bad day and could lose that game. But if you've had a really good season and you kind of bring that momentum into the game, whereas the other team you're playing have kind of collapsed towards the end of the season, you should win that game anyway, purely based on the momentum you have. So I don't think that's really an awful idea. I, I, don't, I don't hate it. And especially at the moment, kind of in the COVID world that we're living in, that kind of doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. The fixture list, especially for the top clubs, is so stacked. And as you said, kind of they spoke about cutting down uh, the community shield and then kind of there's two different kind of suggestions about what to do with the carabao cup um i think the fixture list is something that needs to be looked at because you're seeing so many injuries anyway and the, it means that if you can cut down two fixtures well four fixtures a year it's not it doesn't seem a lot but in a drastic kind of scheme when you look into scheduling it's actually quite a big deal so i i'm not fully against it i'd actually quite like to see maybe for a trial period to see how it would go. But I mean, it, it's up in the air. It kind of looks like it is going to go through, but it, it would be interesting to see how it would work. Kind of my my main issue with, with some of these proposals is I, 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 I'm worried that I'm going to sound a little bit kind of kind of against modern football, which, which really isn't the case. But I just feel like we've had a 20-team Premier League for a long, long time. It's not been a huge issue. And, and you look at the Premier League now, the quality and the wealth of the teams involved and the strength and depth of the teams at the top of the Premier League has drastically improved. There are some of the players, you'll know this better than I will, there are some of the players who won the Champions League with Liverpool in, in 2006, who you look at the kind of their names on Wikipedia and you go, what, they won a Champions League? And this is a team that went all the way and, and won the whole thing. So I, I'm not, and again, I understand the argument that fixture congestion is an issue because it clearly is and players are getting injured. And especially at the moment, and again, these are exceptional circumstances. Not every season is going to be like kind of the 2020-21 season because we are just in such a crazy world at the moment. But I just feel like 
the justification for cutting the number of teams just feels a little bit off for me because if you're meant to be the best league in the world, I feel like you should probably be able to handle kind of 38, 38 games in a season. I think there are other ways where you can cut down the number of fixtures too. You could get rid of kind of FA Cup replays, which they have already done. You could get rid of the Carabao Cup, which they've suggested. Um, and, and, and there's ways of doing it that way as well. Part of kind of this uh, legislation that's been proposed as well is also the idea that kind of clubs would take part in a pre-season Premier League tournament, which if that is included, and again, that would mainly be for kind of commercial reasons because it would take place outside of the UK, it would be a really good opportunity, of course, kind of in post-coronavirus times to, to build the fan base. That's fine. But again, you're adding more kind of air miles and more kind of running for each of the teams that for me doesn't make a whole lot of sense on the point of the Bundesliga style playoff um I really don't mind that I quite like it I think the format's fun I think it adds something a little bit interesting to the end of the season and again you look at the teams that often come up from the championship into the Premier League and a lot of the time some of the teams aren't very good to, to be perfectly kind of blunt like Norwich last season just didn't have the quality to survive and this season Fulham currently don't necessarily look like they have the quality to survive so if it was a case of the team that comes up with I know Norwich didn't come up with the playoffs but if it's a case of the team who does come up from through the playoffs has to be the the kind of 17th 16th place team in the Premier League from last season then it might kind of raise the standard in the bottom half a little bit because there is the argument that the gap between the Premier League and the Championship has got too big because you have teams like Fulham and Norwich who happily kind of swing between the two competitions but just aren't quite able to to make a genuine impact in the Premier League. So if you then make it more difficult to, to get into the Premier League, do you close the gap or do you just make the gap bigger? I think that's kind of one of, one of the question marks with that. Callum, the other idea, one of the other ideas in this was to abolish the Carabao Cup or kind of the League Cup as it's known kind of outside of sponsorship terms. Jurgen Klopp has been exceptionally outspoken on this issue, has as has been kind of Pep Guardiola too. Would you scrap the League Cup? Do you think this is a good idea? Um I don't know. I don't think I'd scrap it because it, it just seems a kind of a waste of a competition. But I, I like the idea that kind of the European clubs uh don't participate in that and that's kind of the way that the big team well the big teams in the premier league that can't break into europe can kind of break into europe through the carabao cup i think that if, if kind of what happens with the voting system it probably would block out teams kind of coming up through through into the top eight uh as often as kind of we've seen in the past few years but if we're giving teams an opportunity to kind of get into europe in that way and then earn the revenue through uh, Carabao Cup. I don't think it's an awful idea to do that. But to be honest, I think getting rid of it completely is a terrible idea. I mean, we see at the moment that obviously you spoke about the championship clubs, some of them uh, maybe going bust by Christmas. But the Carabao Cup for some of the League One and League Two sides is massive in terms of revenue. Uh, like a good cup running, even the Carabao Cup or the FA Cup can kind of keep your club afloat for a season or two based on a kind of like ticket sales, obviously not at the moment, but kind of based on the ticket sales and then kind of how far you go in the competition. I think it would be unfair on the, on the smaller sides. And I think once again, you kind of, the, you, the two managers you've listed are both 
managers that don't have to deal with uh, massive financial pressures. And I don't think sometimes they think about that. And obviously, we've said that they, you've said about uh, the £250 million package that has kind of been shoehorned into this deal in kind of like, basically to be a sweetener. And I agree. Um, uh, you can obviously, the, the teams can afford to give £250 million out between them. I mean, you have to look at Arsenal, <laughs> what happened recently. I mean, sacking Gunnosaurus, which is a travesty in itself, but then going out the next day and spending £45 million on Thomas Party and then mega wages as, as well. Uh, you've got to look at these clubs and think, are they really got the interest of the smaller club at heart or are they kind of just doing it for themselves? The, the, I think the one thing that I think, uh, going back to your point as well, kind of about the gap between the championship and the playoffs, is that we're talking about modern football and modern football is obviously all about money. Um, so at the moment, it's, it's really hard for any team kind of coming up from the championship or like League One, unless they've got super rich owners to kind of get anywhere. Whereas I think kind of what is spoke about in this kind of project big picture, kind of why it's given that name is that each year, and we spoke about this before, is that 25% of the kind of income that Premier League teams earn would then be split between the leagues. And I mean, we've spoken about that before and said that was something we'd like to see because it, it would improve the quality of the teams below if they have that money to kind of invest in their teams. And then there's also the parts about uh, the Premier League kind of get being able, you're able to take funds back out in terms of if you want to build a new training uh, uh, kind of complex or you was building a better uh, stadium or getting better facilities, you're kind of able to take some of that money back and the Premier League would help eat the smaller teams out. So that would only push up the uh, kind of, the, the uh, standard of the leagues below them so I think there is definitely some parts of it that are, that are good for the smaller teams but I think yeah getting rid of the Carabao Cup kind of coming back to that that would be really bad for the kind of smaller teams when we're looking at it as a project big picture as so-called yeah right I agree on on the Carabao Cup I, I I really do understand why the the so-called big teams don't like being in it because it is the least prestigious competition that that they take part in and it's kind of obvious that they therefore would care about it the least and would be most willing to see it go but kind of as you say there's there's lots of teams that rely on cup revenue to kind of see them through the year and it's important to keep them afloat kind of in the best of times so i think it i think it makes sense to keep the carabao cup in some form i don't hate the suggestion that you just kind of take out the the teams that qualify for europe because kind of number one, that would then give other teams an opportunity to win the competition. Number two, it then kind of negates the issue of fixture congestion because every other this is the thing as well. If you don't want to be in the Carabao Cup, there's a very very easy way to make sure that you're not in the competition. It's very very simple. You just play a weakened team and you lose. So teams that that really do complain viscerally about the Carabao Cup could quite easily just turn, I know this isn't a nice suggestion it's a little bit kind of pragmatic but could very easily just turn around and just play the kids which wouldn't be good for the development but it happens and I mean uh, it, it was kind of amid a kind of um, an injury crisis at the time but there, there was during Sam Allardyce's reign at kind of West Ham there was back-to-back uh, -back matches where we played Nottingham Forest in the FA Cup in January and then we played the second leg of the of the League Cup semi-final against Manchester City and Allardyce just played all of the kids against Nottingham Forest and I think it was like 6-0 it was really really ridiculous what he did 
Uh, the rationale was, of course, well, we're, we're in the semi-final of the Carabao Cup. We'll, we'll try and persist with this. And then we got slapped, I think, 6-0 by Man City too. So it wasn't it wasn't his finest hour. But the point is, if you don't want to be in a competition, there's a very easy way to solve that. And again, it's not unprecedented for teams to walk out of competitions. Manchester United did kind of walk out on the FA Cup in order to go and play in, in the Club World Cup back in, what, 2000? But yeah, I think the Carabao Cup has to stay. Whether or not it's reformed or not is kind of neither here nor there. I think it's inevitable. The one that I didn't actually, I, I still don't really understand this is why are clubs, why are kind of Liverpool and Manchester United in particular keen to see the community shield abolished? Because my understanding is it's, it's one game a season. It's, it's basically a glorified friendly that you get a trophy for. It's a good day out at, at Wembley. You get to play some of kind of the youngsters. You get to bed in some new signings. It doesn't seem like it's that much of a strain on these clubs if we're looking from kind of a fixture congestion perspective and you'd also be losing a number of games by cutting the number of teams in the Premier League down so kind of what do you make of that Callum? Um, from from kind of being a team that's kind of qualified for it in the past couple of seasons I think I think our problem with it and I think this is kind of from like a manager's perspective more than anything is that the community shield over recent times has kind of changed massively it's kind of it kind of was seen as a good trophy to win uh, a few seasons ago, maybe to going back 10 years. And now it's, as you said, seen as a glorified friendly. And at one point it was seen as the kind of curtain raiser of a season. But now the community shield has moved back from one uh, one week out from the season to two, maybe three even uh, weeks out from. So if you're one of them two teams that are um, in the community shield, you basically have your pre-season cut two to three weeks short. So say um, where was Liverpool or in Austria, this um, summer for a pre-season camp and they had to come home a couple of weeks early and kind of rush through their fixtures because obviously they had the community shields play. So I think if you if you do qualify for it, you kind of do lose out on some of your, your pre-season training to kind of get your tactics right for that for big kind of game for the, uh, of the season. And I think... I think it's as you said, it's a glorified friendly now. Like I, w- I, I, I wasn't annoyed that we lost it this year, and I wouldn't really have cared if we won it. But I think, from an outside perspective, it's just like, well, no, it, why does it need to go? But I think, in kind of a logistical sense, it, it makes sense to kind of get rid of it because you're cutting two teams pre-season short, whilst everybody else can kind of carry on their training and kind of get their tactics right for the first game of the Premier League. Yeah, I feel like that makes sense. My concern would be if if you scrap the community shield, do we then have a situation where it comes back as some kind of rebranded pre-match, uh, pre-season tournament, pre-season event that then happens kind of elsewhere because the Italian um, kind of Super Cup is held all over the world and is used kind of to promote Italian football. So that that's something that that's something that worries me a little bit because I think if if you are especially if it's a team that doesn't expect to win either the Premier League or the FA Cup and then gets the opportunity to take part in the Community Shield. I think it's important that those teams kind of still get the day out at Wembley. And I know that I, I'm very much sounding like a small-time West Ham fan, but I kind of get it. Yeah, Callum? This might be a really rogue suggestion, but it kind of just popped into my head. So, obviously, yeah, I haven't really thought about kind of taking that day away kind of at Wembley. Um, but maybe it's something you could follow. So, each year in the Six Nations, England and Scotland, when they face each other, they play for a trophy that is literally between England and Scotland. So maybe if it is two Premier League teams coming up against each other, they can agree uh, that both of them fixtures are played at Wembley 
and then kind of you bet have one of them would count for the trophy but one of them might not be played for a trophy but then you kind of take away the home and away and they still get a day out you still deal with a trophy but it's kind of in, in, in intertwined with the kind of season as the kind of six nations is i think what you've just advocated for there is the incursion of mls <laughs> on English football because of course you've got in MLS you've got all the kind of crazy little kind of inter-team cups that they they play for throughout the year so like the Rocky Mountain Cup um so on and so forth where they, where they get trophies um I, uh, I I'm not sure on that one I mean I don't know I, I just I don't mind the community shield I think the thing is when I think about the community shield and this is a really silly reason to keep a kind of something in football but it, it's how I feel so I'm going to say it anyway is I think about being on holiday somewhere kind of pretty naff with my parents and kind of sitting down and watching uh, the one that comes to mind is is Arsenal versus Chelsea and it's just been quite nice and it's just been the start of the season and I just feel I know this is horrible now this isn't analysis this is proper kind of talk sport kind of level stuff but I, I don't mind it I, I, I don't mind it the the next kind of thing on the list was the scrap parachute payments which is an interesting proposal considering a lot of the funds and a lot of kind of the reasoning behind this is to support teams in the Championship League One and League Two. Do you think it makes sense to get rid of parachute payments? Uh, in my eyes, yes. I think it is uh, kind of make, it does make sense because there are so many problems kind of with parachute payments that I probably don't know enough about anyway. I can't really speak on it in kind of wider terms, but a lot of the time there's there to kind of give you financial stability but it kind of seems to do the complete opposite and sometimes thrown the club into a little bit of turmoil whereas i think kind of the way that they're saying that, that it would be more structured in the way that teams are given money it would definitely provide teams with kind of more financial stability when they're kind of going up or down in a league um so i, I don't think it's a bad bad thing to, to get rid of parachute payments to be honest yeah i agree and the issue that you have with parachute payments is not necessarily with the teams that get relegated one year and then jump straight back up the next. The issue with because then the parachute payments stop. The issue that you have is when you start giving, I think, parachute payments last three years. Pretty sure it's three years. And then say a team gets relegated, they spend three years in the championship. They get all that money and it just kind of doesn't really achieve anything. And the issue that you then have is you then potentially have a team that overspends on what it's actually capable of affording at that level. So when, when teams get relegated, they have to shave down the wage bill, but they've still got the parachute money, so they spend that money on, on the players, which makes total sense. That's kind of what it's there for. The issue that you then have is that after three years, a club who has potentially gambled on getting promoted back to the Premier League is then in a situation where it can't actually afford the players they had signed because they've no longer got the money going in because they recruited those people on the premise of being back in, in the top flight. And I think one of the good things about scrapping parachute payments would be that you then have, as you say, kind of a more solid base to build from because then the money going into teams in the championship from above is consistent and it's structured and it's regimented. And then you don't have a situation where you have teams that are too good for the championship but not not good enough for the Premier League, as we've kind of seen with Norwich and Fulham being the, being the two examples that come to mind. I think parachute payments... Or a parachute payment could work on its own. I think it's when you get to a situation, get to a situation where it lasts for a number of years, where it becomes slightly more problematic because it can become kind of a crutch to support clubs and ownership groups that are running the team badly. 
I think that's kind of one of the main sticking points for me anyway. Um, kind of one of the other main talking points on this was was the idea that a £250 million rescue fund would be made immediately available to the EFL. And alongside that, 25% of all future TV deal revenue would go to clubs in the Football League. Callum, good news or bad news? Well, I mean, it's brilliant news, isn't it? Like, we've seen, obviously, last year with Berry kind of... Uh, in their financial situation they were and weren't even uh, weren't able to get out of it so simply they were sadly lost uh, the, and especially now it's kind of after that and uh, with covid i think a lot of more people around the football world have kind of woken up to the fact that the smaller teams really need uh, help from the bigger clubs at this time and obviously the 250 million pound payout is, is amazing in itself but we no one knows kind of how long the impact of COVID is going to last. So that 250 million could save the team for another year, but say COVID goes on for longer, which hopefully it doesn't, but it might. Um, teams could find themselves back in trouble within another season. So obviously kind of something we, <laughs> we haven't spoke about at the moment, um, but um, the Premier League announced this week, the pay-per-view kind of system has been brought in by Sky and BT. So 15 pound a game, they're charging fans, which is is a rip-off, but we won't go into that uh, totally in a moment. Um, so it, that's kind of how the Premier League clubs are kind of earning their revenue, but it's kind of unfeasible to charge that amount for a, a smaller team game. So whilst the Premier League is earning that revenue, usually in the kind of current method that we have, the Premier League sees all of that money and it won't go anywhere else. Whereas kind of in the future, if this deal goes through, then... The, the clubs would see 25% of what is earned on that kind of profit to the Premier League because obviously the TV companies take some of it. So I think I think the the financial impact of both of them kind of deals is is massive for smaller clubs and they're really beneficial. Uh, I think that they're they're probably the two of the best parts of the whole kind of project, big picture in my eyes. I agree. There are kind of two points to this. Of course, clubs need assistance like imminently in order to stay afloat because a lot of them and again this this is a kind of a fact of, of the situation as well a lot of clubs in the football league and even in the premier league are run really really badly it's kind of very obvious to say that clubs drastically outspend their means and when you end up of course no one predicted that the coronavirus would happen but when you end up in a situation where you lose your revenue stream for a couple of months what was once kind of unsustainable then becomes like an imminent threat to, to a business's survival so yeah that's clearly an issue um the second part the 25 percent to kind of efl clubs from tv revenue deals i like that that's something that i think is used in france you mentioned on a previous podcast um and again that's something that will that, that will shore up the foundations of lower league football the only and again i i say this from a position of skepticism and i look at this kind of from a kind of real politic perspective is what is the premier league looking for in return because a big part of this proposal and they've tried to sneak it in under the radar is is kind of the voting rights issue and the thing that you have there is that the premier league or the, the clubs involved in this clearly want more power which is fine and that's totally understandable when they're trying to leverage teams into accepting this and there's been lots of very conflicting reports talking about whether or not League One and League Two teams are actually on side with these proposals. There was a report on the BBC yesterday, um, Tuesday afternoon, 
that said, yeah, clubs really like this proposal. It'll be great. And then there was another report today that said that clubs had actually been in contact with the BBC and said, no, we're not so sure. There's like issues with this. So the question would be, what are these teams looking for? And one of the concerns, I'm not actually sure if we should be particularly concerned about this, but one of the things people are concerned about is that this will kind of be a proxy means of changing the way that player registration works in the Football League. So then clubs will be allowed a larger number of domestic players from Premier League clubs. And to be honest, I'm not sure I hate it if that were to be the case, because you then have young players get more experience, potentially improves the national team and gives people an opportunity to kind of play meaningful first team minutes. The issue, obviously, you have with that is then there are less spots for players who ordinarily play in the Football League. You then bump in them down the leagues and then it becomes, for want of a better word, a B team from the Premier League. So you have the issue there. But yeah, I think the 25% is definitely a step in the right direction. It just very much depends on what is being leveraged in return. Just just before we move on... Um... Obviously, the 25% is massive, and I don't think I've really seen many people talk about this. Um, I kind of just really thought about this yesterday because uh, one, of my, one of the people I went to school with and one of the people I'm friends with uh, plays for the QPR under-23s, um, kind of supposed to make a breakthrough this season. But something I don't think a lot of people have thought about in, in terms of COVID is kind of how much an academy kind of takes to run. Like, you obviously have your own staff or an academy, you have to pay your players' wages, you're paying for a separate training ground. So there's a lot of finances uh, to do with that as well. So that 25% would would be massive for kind of teams' academies. But as you just said, teams in the Premier League are then looking out to loan uh, players, uh, more players to the kind of lower league teams, which kind of then what it might, might not actually impact kind of the first team players. It might actually impact the kind of, the, the the youth players at teams that kind of can't make their break in the Premier League and have got, gone down a league, maybe they're not going to be able to get the opportunities that they, they want. And maybe that is kind of why the Premier League kind of looking at it from like a financial perspective, thinking, well, they could just cut down on their academy costs and kind of we can send out loads of our young players and that can basically be, we're going to filter through all of our like talent from the academy into the lower leagues. And that can basically be their academy for a few seasons. Where So I think you'll see a lot more kind of affiliations between clubs. Um, so it, it'll be, it's interesting to kind of look at from kind of that sense in, in, in that the lower leagues kind of might see a change in kind of how their academies work too because of this whole change in the system. For sure. And I think kind of youth development in the UK is is really quite shockingly bad in many respects. I mean, the EPPP, the Elite Player Progression Pathway, it's, it's something like that. It's just awful in the way that it just allows clubs in the Premier League, clubs with established very, very good academies to basically take very good players from lower league teams for peanuts just because they're bigger. I mean, that is just, for me, a little bit ludicrous and it kind of defeats the object. Clubs that invest lots of money into developing these players should get a fair price for them. A slight tangent, but one of the most ridiculous things you will ever see um, to, to shoehorn MLS into another discussion is Caden Clark used to, uh, just just made his debut for the New York Red Bulls. He'd spent his entire, pretty much all of his recent youth career playing for uh, Red Bull New York 2 in the USL Championship. However, he was originally from Minnesota and 
because of the fact that he was born and lived in Minnesota as a child, it then meant that New York had to trade £75,000 in allocation money in order to be able to play him, in order to kind of play him in MLS and have his rights. I mean, that is just the most ridiculous method in, in the world. And I mean, people involved in MLS have said that too. But yeah, MLS tangent aside, there are serious, serious issues with the way that kind of British youth academies run, English youth academies run. And the way to solve that for me is not by centralising everything in the arms of the Premier League, because then you end up with a very kind of homogenous group of players. You end up with all the same kind of player who come from the same academy. And the, the thing is, they wouldn't be bad players. They'd be very good technically players. They'd be great at that. But at the same time, you look at kind of the players that are produced from lower levels and they still kind of punctuate a lot of the Premier League teams. Mikel Antonio came from a lower league background. Jamie Vardy, of course, the, the prime example of this. So I think it's important that we kind of maintain some kind of youth development strategy across the whole of football. One of the other kind of parts of this proposal was to bring in a £100 million payment to the FA to make up for lost revenue. I believe that's in relation to kind of the the fewer number of fixtures in the Premier League and kind of the change in, in structure of the Premier League. Do you think the FA should be compensated for this? Um, to be honest, I don't think it should be that much. I, I, I get they do need compensation because obviously there are people that need to be paid not necessarily the people at the top who earn the ridiculous wages, but there are people that work kind of lower down the FA that will need to be paid as well. And then obviously you've got to think about it as well. FA kind of governs grassroots football as well. So they do need kind of their, their revenue streams to kind of help out the grassroots football so we can bring through uh, young talent. Um, but I, I just don't think the, the FA lately have kind of really helped themselves at all in kind of way they've gone about many things. So I don't know if I'm just being biased. I don't, I don't think the, the FA have been too great recently. So I might just be being kind of overly sceptical about kind of giving them money. But I don't really see how they've massively lost out on anything, apart from kind of fans in stadiums, which is obviously a massive loss. But that, that affects clubs more, more than the FA. Yeah, I think... Again, I, I approach the FA with, with a degree of scepticism because it's not the best run organisation in the world. However, what you Very say careful. about football is, yeah, but it's kind of true. It's like, <laughs> you uh, I mean, the FA might track me down now, who yeah. knows. But it's, it's important that the FA is well-funded in order to maintain new football. And again, on a, on a really micro level, um, and a lot of people listening to this podcast won't be able to relate to this, but uh, the system used by uh, lower league clubs and referees and everyone involved with football, the whole the whole match system, the whole game system, is the worst piece of IT you will ever encounter. You literally have to queue to get on the FA's website so that you can log a match report. It's that ridiculously bad. So the FA clearly has institutional issues in terms of how it is functioning at the moment. So if the 100 million sorts out the system and it makes it easier for me to kind of log match reports, that would be greatly appreciated. But yeah, I, I mean, it, it's an odd one, isn't it, giving 100 million to kind of the FA at this point. And that kind of moves us on nicely to the most controversial element of this, the idea that nine clubs would be given special voting rights on certain issues based on their extended runs in the Premier League. 
Callum, you love democracy. What do you make of this? <laughs> um, well, I kind of alluded to it at the start. For me, being a fan of a, a European kind of giant, it does kind of reek of the kind of implementation of a, a European Super League in the future, which um, I believe we have discussed before, but just kind of to reiterate kind of my stance on that. I would find it extremely hard and painful to support a club that uh, kind of is involved in basically a money-grabbing competition. There, there would be kind of really no benefit, I don't think, in having in kind of the big teams disbanding from the Premier League and going out to Europe to play Barcelona every sort of, every sort of like five weeks or so. It to me doesn't really make sense and. The two clubs obviously pushing this are Manchester United and Liverpool, two clubs that have been touted by the kind of other European teams who are ready to go. And I think some of some of the kind of US investors who kind of want to get involved in it. Um, so to me, it just reeks of kind, kind of just kind of, I, I don't know how to put it, kind of like big teams thinking they're bigger than they actually are and kind of not viewing themselves as kind of part of that league. They actually think they're too good for that league. Um, but I really don't. I don't understand how you how some teams think they can can say that they are worth so many more votes than kind of another club. And if it's it's the same sort of thing. I, I, uh, I know you host the uh, politics podcast, or so I'll kind of try and link that. I don't. I really understand kind of a US voting system in the sense that some states count, votes count for more kind of points in a system. To me, that's not fair. <laughs> the fairest system is, as you said, a democracy where everybody's vote counts the same. Just because one club has more money than another club, it shouldn't be, oh, well, we, we have bigger power and we bring more to the league. It should be for the whole league's benefit rather than kind of a few clubs' benefit. Yeah, there's on, on this topic, there is a hell of a lot to talk about. Um and on American politics, yeah, the, the the electoral college is just the craziest thing ever. And there there are actually people in American politics who like to talk about uh, kind of American democracy as not actually being a democracy. It's actually meant to be a republic. And that's therefore the justification for the use of a crazy voting system. That aside, um, I don't really, well, I'll be honest, this is just ridiculous. It's just, it's a blatant power grab. And I don't really understand the justification for it. And I don't really understand why they've drawn the line at nine clubs. Because nine clubs would give West Ham United special voting rights in the Premier League. What on earth have West Ham done to deserve any kind of special recognition within the Premier League? I don't know. It's honestly ridiculous. I don't understand why any club would get additional voting rights. And again, it, it kind of... It's a means of consolidating power at the top of English football because you have these definitely six, potentially seven, eight, nine clubs that are meant to make up kind of the bulk of kind of the powerhouse of, of, of the sport in this country. And I just feel like it's totally unnecessary because a lot of the time, the majority of Premier League clubs agree on most things anyway. And again, we saw it with kind of most notably with kind of the negotiations about how to restart the season in in kind of the Premier League and lower down as well. We had these conversations in, in League One. And a lot of the time, the clubs typically coalesce around a position that makes a lot of sense anyway. So, for example, in, in League One, the conversation was pretty simple. The teams that 
weren't going to qualify for the playoffs, but thought they had an opportunity to, said we need to finish the season. Everyone else, apart from, of course, the clubs that were going to be relegated as a result of this, said, no, we'll finish the season now and just cut straight to the playoffs with the teams that would qualify if the season ended now. You ended up with a position that actually made financial sense for the league and the clubs involved. That's fine. And again, there was no need for teams in that division to have special voting rights because that's not how a vote should should really work, in my opinion. So, yeah, I just feel like this... And again, what are the kind of certain issues that the teams would have more power to decide over? Because it could quite easily be a case. And again, this is very, very cynical of me. But if these special voting rights apply on things like, should we keep the kind of 25% to EFL clubs? And all the Premier League teams that have been in the Premier League teams for the longest say, oh, we're going to stay in the Premier League anyway. So maybe we'll just kind of take some of that money back. I mean, it's a slippery slope. And again, I think you have to have democratic safeguards to prevent that kind of thing from happening because this system very much could lead to a kind of tyranny of the minority. If it was a majority of clubs, the top 11 clubs, it would make a little bit more sense. But when you're looking to concentrate the power in a select few teams, that's when it starts to get a little bit crazy. There's a, there's a couple of really interesting kind of things to look at in terms of the teams that would be involved in this vote. Um, one being kind of a lot of them kind of people that own these clubs. So FSG, who own Liverpool, are based in America. Um, Roman Abramovich, who owns Chelsea, is uh, based in Russia and kind of so on and so forth. A lot of the money that's kind of involved in these clubs is offshore. So there's a real argument to say that they want to expand kind of their power kind of outside of English football and kind of bring it um, more outward and kind of bring so that it doesn't really impact their money too much because it's impacting English football rather than kind of everything. So there's kind of something to look into in that. Um, it's super, super interesting. But the other thing that's really interesting and kind of, I don't know, this is kind of, I don't know, I've read things that have kind of said the deal was a lot further down the line than people think. And something that's kind of written into the deal that I don't think we've kind of discussed is that the fact that these nine teams can veto a takeover from another side. So obviously recently we saw that the Newcastle deal was kind of pulled on, the, uh, the plug was pulled and there's not really been much kind of conversation from the Premier League or anybody else really as to why that decision, decision was kind of uh, taken. So for me, uh, I, I think sceptically and I say, has this deal actually been a lot further down the line than we think? And uh, these clubs have come in and said, whoa, 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 we don't want Newcastle being taken over by these mega giants. Because if that's part of the deal that's being drawn up, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be too, too crazy to kind of join two loose ends and get to that point. But for me, in a wider sense of things, that is an absolutely crazy rule that these nine clubs could veto another club from being taken over purely because they're scared that it would become another Manchester City, which, I mean, it's not great for football, but if that, it's also not great for football that other clubs can control who takes over a club because they're scared of the potential of another club. So there's so many things wrong with the voting system and kind of how it's swayed to the side of the bigger clubs in England. Fundamentally, clubs shouldn't be able to decide how strong the competition they face it shouldn't be up to manchester united manchester city liverpool etc to say yeah we don't really want arsenal uh don't really want newcastle to get more kind of money we'll, we'll block the deal that 
hypothetically doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. And there's a bit of a contradiction in these proposals because one of the one of the things that people have been talking about a lot with this is the fact that it's been proposed by two American owners. And kind of the the lazy assertion that people have kind of tried to make is that this is kind of the path to some kind of locked in top division where no one gets promoted and relegated and it's just kind of this elite group of clubs i i that's not the case that's not how english football works and it's never how english football is going to work but it does it does look a lot like they're trying to concentrate the power in a certain group of people in a similar way to kind of other or rather some american leagues are run and you look at kind of all the major american leagues they're all a franchise model and i'm not suggesting that the premier league would ever turn into a franchise model but it's starting to look like the teams that are constant figures in the premier league would quite like to have this power to exert over others and then they can collectively say, yeah, not a big fan of this. Because it's important to remember when we talk about kind of MLS, the NHL, NBA, so on and so forth, there are negotiations within these competitions among the owners about how the league is going to work. So like most recently you had kind of the NHL had a new kind of um, contractual bargaining agreement where they decided the new rules going forwards kind of with regards to the salary cap. And that makes perfect sense because all the people involved have an equal share of the power and it's up to the people who kind of are involved in the league. That's fine. But of course the Premier League doesn't work that way because new teams come in every year. You've got the potential of new teams rising up and, and getting good. And that's the issue is this, this is framed in a kind of context of it being about enriching the competition within English football. There's a lot about kind of making the sum of our parts better than they currently are, which is a which is a noble cause to have. But there's also a really serious element of this, which is about kind of making English football less competitive. And it's very anti-competitive in the sense that you take power away from 14 clubs or other 12 clubs, as it would kind of be under under the new regulations. And then you place it in a select few. So, yeah, I think the voting rights is ultimately what will undo this if it does get undone. Yeah, kind of just going off that point as well. One of the main problems with football and kind of why people are falling out of love with it is that it's no longer a sport. It is very much a business. And kind of you saw Manchester United fans kind of with the collapse of the Sancho deal and other things that went on this summer, infuriated by the fact that their club is kind of run by businessmen rather than somebody who is sports first. And it's kind of similar to Liverpool. Um, our owners, own, uh, they own the Boston Red Sox, but they're very much kind of indulged in this money ball kind of tactic. And everything is from a business standpoint. Um, <laughs> our fans this summer were kind of saying that we have to obviously sell players first to go out and buy, which is true. Uh, it's not an awful model to take. But the problem with this is that now these two kind of business owners are seeing the Premier League as kind of something they have shares in and because they are stakeholders as to call them and because they bring in more money than the rest of the clubs they think they have greater power to do things because they are if your equivalent of bringing in revenue is to how much you own of a company they are saying we have more percentage of this than the rest of the league which is why that kind of voting method is brought in but the fact that football has gone so far away from being kind of a communal sport is just ridiculous now because it is strictly viewed as a business to so many people within the sport which is just it really to be honest it's terrible to kind of see I, the commercialization of football was inevitable and again this was set in motion in 
1992 when the Premier League started and it was kind of always going to follow in this path. And you look at kind of the increasing valuation of players throughout the ages, of course. A million pounds three decades ago would have got you a very different player to, to what a million pounds would get you now. Um, and then there's an element of kind of saying money makes the world go round, which is true. One of the contradictions, kind of, we keep talking about America, or I keep talking about America, but one of the contradictions between kind of the American uh, set of values, which kind of come to dominate the politics of the United States, and the way in which their sports kind of competitions are run, is that in a respect, American sporting competitions are run with kind of socialist values, insofar as the idea is to make all the teams as equal as possible. That's why if you have a rubbish season, you get a better draft pick. And the idea is that you then have a draft pick who's going to improve and then kind of changes the fortunes of the teams. You compare that with American society and it's all about individualism, kind of, kind of the American dream, working hard and it will pay off. There's a contradiction there because in American sports, if you do rubbish, you get help from the organisation above. So that there's a bit of a contradiction there. And you're right. And I think this is this is kind of at the heart of this, is that Manchester United and Liverpool's owners are kind of looking at this and saying, well, the Premier League is a product that we that we contribute to. We're a big part of why it's watched worldwide. We have all this history. We have all these great players. We're, we're like massively important to what this is. And if we left, it would be pretty catastrophic for everyone who is still there. And I feel like this is just a big, big opportunity for Liverpool and Manchester United to try and shake up the way the game is played in England. And I think it's slightly different to what we've seen before because it's come very much against the wishes of everyone else involved. Of course, Rick Parry, who is the chairman of the EFL, I think that's his title, has been really supportive of this. But kind of the people involved with running the Premier League and with running the FA are totally dead set against it. And I feel like we're going to be in for weeks and months of kind of talks about how English football is in a state of civil war. And it's going to get very, very political between the clubs because West Ham have already come out and said we're totally against this. Um, which, to be honest, if I'm being somewhat cynical, I'd say that's probably because they don't want to see the number of teams in the Premier League reduced. Um, but yeah, I, I, there's there's so many elements to this. It's, it's quite complicated. On a slightly separate note, I wanted to ask you about the um, pay-per-view system that they're talking about or have implemented for Premier League games, which these games that otherwise wouldn't have been picked for television cost $14.95 to stream from Sky Sports or BT Sport. Um, it's proven hellishly unpopular among supporters, although I suspect that lots of people will still pay for the games anyway. What do you make of kind of the proposal? Uh, to me, it just feels like another money-grabbing kind of situation. Um, if you kind of look around different countries and kind of what they're paying in kind of relative terms to what we're paying per sport, you can get pretty much every single league you can think of, and and then the F1, some of the boxing, uh, the tennis, and other so on and so forth. Um, in Australia, for the same price per month that you're paying for one game in England. So I don't know what I get why they've done it because they're thinking, well, you're going to have to, if you were going to the games, you'd have to pay X amount of money anyway. But part of the uh, reason you go to a sporting kind of event is for the atmosphere, for kind of to see your friends, to have a drink, to the social aspects and kind of the whole atmosphere of the day. Right now, 
I can't really say I want to pay £15 to sit in my living room and watch, who is it, Newcastle, Manchester United this weekend. That doesn't entice me at all. It's just, it just is a massive money-grabbing scheme. And I don't, I don't think, I don't, I don't get how anybody in the companies that kind of came up with these ideas really thought it was a good idea. Because surely they, they at one stage of their lives, were kind of sports fans, for, first and foremost. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a good look for kind of the, the clubs that all agreed to it. Uh, I believe there was only one team that didn't agree to it. Um, it's just, yeah, it's just a baffling decision. Yeah, so Leicester, I believe it was Leicester were the only club to kind of reject this proposal, which, of course, under the current rules, you need a couple more teams to, to strike something like that down. Again, I'll start on similar terrain to kind of how you picked up this question. If I will we'll pick a hypothetical West Ham game that wouldn't be put for, pick for television, if I was given the opportunity to pay £15 to watch West Ham play against Fulham on a Sunday afternoon, I would not be paying £15 to watch West Ham play against Fulham on Sunday afternoon. I would probably be watching the Bundesliga or MLS highlights or paint dry, if I'm being totally honest. That a lot of the time is not. It's not worth my time paying that much money. And again, there were, and this is the thing as well, and this was something that Michael Cox tweeted, who is the tactics writer for The Athletic. He said this this policy is going to disproportionately impact fans who support pretty naff teams, like your West Ham's, your Newcastle's, your West Brom's of this world, are going to be disproportionately put on the pay-per-view system because the games that are picked for television are going to include your Manchester United, your Liverpool's, your Arsenal's, your Chelsea's, the teams that are actually got something to play for, essentially, at the start of the season. And that's fine, but of course, you then have a situation where one group of fans is expected to pay potentially 45 quid a month in order to watch their team, vis-a-vis kind of Liverpool fans who pr- probably are going to have every single game televised as usual. I'd have wanted my money back last week. I would have been writing a strongly letted, uh, strongly edited email to the club asking for my money back. I mean, yeah, that, that, that's the thing as well, isn't it? And I mean, that, that's, yeah, it's just going to impact certain fans more than others, which again, I think is unfair. Um, in terms of, and one of the tweets that, that got a lot of backlash, and this is someone who receives a lot of backlash, sometimes rightly, sometimes very, very wrongly, is Eni Aluko, who basically said, well, the Premier League has been giving away this product for free since the start of lockdown. This was always going to happen, and it needed to happen. And uh, I understand the perspective. I get the idea that why should we be entitled to these games for free? And as you'll be able to tell, I'm not of the opinion that football fans have to watch football. So I'm a West, I'm a West Ham fan, as everyone will know. I don't have to watch every West Ham game. No West Ham fan has to watch every West Ham West Ham game. You choose to do that. And if it gets to a certain point where West Ham are £15 one week, £15 the next week, you look at it and you go, I don't really have the money to spend on that. Quite simply, you don't have to pay £15 to watch West Ham. You can choose not to. You can choose to watch the highlights. And I get that's not a very kind of happy, clappy, friendly thing to say. But that's the fundamental truth truth of it. You don't need to watch every game. So I don't buy the argument necessarily that football fans are so hard done by because this is another another expense for football fans because you, you can choose not to take part in this. And I think a lot of people will choose not to take part in this. The issue, though, comes from the fact that these companies are prying on people who are willing to do that 
and it's just not worth the money. And even if we take away kind of the element of the football on show, because a lot of the time I suspect it will be kind of the low order games that people necessarily probably wouldn't watch in the first place. The other issue you get is I think, and I, I don't think this is a particularly kind of hot take on this on this topic, but the quality of punditry and especially commentary in the UK and in the Premier League in particular isn't very high. And if you think about how much you pay to watch kind of pay-per-view boxing and things like that, the analysis is, is ordinarily of a higher standard. Of course, it's, it costs more because a ticket to actually go to the boxing costs more than the Premier League ticket. Makes sense. But I feel like value for money in terms of the broadcast quality a lot of the time would fall below what I'd expect from that much money anyway. And when you look at how much it costs to have Now TV for a day, the sports pass, and you compare it with watching one game of the Premier League simply for £15, it just, it just feels a little bit weird. It just feels like, have the teams really thought this through? Yeah, you you kind of took kind of my final point right out of my mouth. I was going to kind of mention the boxing. When you buy a boxing card, obviously you do buy it for the main card, but you've got, if you wish, about seven, six or seven hours of boxing prior to that, um, which you're not going to get for the price of what you're paying for the Premier League. You're getting one game. And kind of what you said, if I'm paying that amount of money to kind of listen to what, Michael Owen, I don't want to pay that. Uh, there's got to be some kind of <laughs> there's got to be some kind of benefit to what you're buying, and it doesn't seem to be kind of there. So they they're going to have to do something to try and kind of sell that product and make it kind of worthwhile. Yeah, definitely, definitely, and that that's the fundamental difficulty difficulty that they'll have as well because there's a lot of fans who will either and again I'm not condoning this behaviour. There will be a lot of fans who a stream the game illegally if they don't want to pay for it. B, we'll watch something else, or C, we'll just not bother and catch up and watch Match of the Day instead. And I feel like there, there was an opportunity to do something that kind of made a bit more sense. And the final thing I'll say about this as well is that there are people, lots and lots of people around the country, who have actually purchased season tickets. They've paid money to their clubs for season tickets, knowing full well that they might not be able to go to the fixtures. And that's fine. And and the reason they did that was to kind of nail down their seats and to keep their place and to kind of stay a part of that club. I understand why people paid their season ticket money, even though that the likelihood of them being able to go to a high number of games or any number of games was was uncertain. What I think would have been a very, very easy kind of success kind of on a on a public relations kind of platform would have been for the Premier League clubs to say, look, we'll let you introduce this pay-per-view thing but only if our season ticket holders get the matches for free, the ones at home for free. Because realistically, and again, it will vary from club to club, but West Ham, I think, have about 30,000 season ticket holders, and I'm not sure it will be as many as that this year. So realistically, you're then giving away 30,000 pay-per-view tickets to watch West Ham play against Fulham, for example. How many dish like out of the number of people who are going to pay for the service anyway how much of the audience are you losing and again if West Ham are playing away against Fulham for example I don't think the West Ham season ticket holders should necessarily get that for free because you wouldn't have in the first place but it makes it just seemed to be the logical solution that clubs gave this service as a replacement for the games that you can't go to instead as you say and as kind of we've mentioned with kind of project big picture on a, on a separate note is it just seems like it's very kind of 
business orientated and it's not really looking after the interests of supporters yeah yeah i agree it's just crazy and it'll be fun to see how long it lasts to be honest yeah i i mean that there was talk that it, it could get pulled at kind of any point imminently and that's an issue as well and you, you talk about the international comparisons I think it's days in Canada. You get it for like twenty uh, Canadian dollars a month, and you get the Premier, all, all literally all of the Premier League, all of Serie A, and so and lots of different competitions too. And of course, you could technically, albeit illegally, download a VPN and then do it that way. And I think that's the that's the issue that football fans in this country have is that a lot. I I don't class myself among this group of people because I I look at football as something that I watch for fun it isn't necessarily something that i have to do because i've got other stuff that i need to do at the same time but there are people who look at it and go look this is a working class ball kind of it's it's where i have all my fun blah 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 it's so so important to me and they'll look at it and they'll go why because i'm from dagnum do i have to pay three times as much to watch this game than someone sitting in montreal does because it's my team and these people are just watching it for fun and I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that argument because it's not really how football works anymore. But there's a certain element of irony that someone on the other side of the world can watch the Premier League more easily and kind of at a lower price than people in this country. Yeah, I mean, we definitely do not condone streaming. Definitely not. Um, but the fact that the kind of the Premier League hasn't clocked on to the that people will just go and get IPTV or other kind of streaming sites for free is kind of ludicrous. And I think kind of my final point on this as well is the fact that this is being sold as kind of a recreational thing. You cannot go to a pub and watch the games that, uh, that have been purchased for £15. It, it's, it's just mental that that is part of the contract because uh, realistically I know the pubs probably shouldn't be showing every game anyway but if the pubs want to pay that money to bring in customers especially in this time I think there's definitely benefit to that especially given the, the fact that in some parts of the country pubs are shutting down so they need to kind of bring in money anyway they can and so putting on a game of football £15 when they can kind of earn X amount through kind of sales of alcohol I, don't, I just don't understand that kind of part of the deal either callum what do you count as a substantial meal <laughs> oh I like, I like liverpool's um option of it which was super today and you get a carlin for two pound 80 that sounds like a substantial meal but no yeah i don't think we should go into this that much because uh, to be honest it just sounds like a substantial meal is whatever witherspoon's put on offer <laughs> <laughs> there is an element to that, and I, there, we, I don't know why we're straight into this topic. But there was a minister on this morning saying, "Well, a, a, a paste, a paste, a pasty on its own is not a substantial meal. But you, if you have it with chips or salad or whatever it comes with, then it does count as a substantial meal. So, I mean, it's probably going to be pasty with nuts or pork scratching or whatever it might be. So, it's not going to be particularly vegetarian friendly. But I'm sure there'll be there'll be loopholes that people around the country look to kind of exploit." I feel like as as we've gone off on a million tangents at this point, we're probably approaching the end of the show. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention or discuss? 
I'm not 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 discuss definitely I'm not discussing this topic, but I'm hoping after this weekend I don't have to go back into hibernation for another week because we've been smacked about by Everton. I don't think I can put myself for another seven two. It nearly broke me. <laughs> I mean that the the Liverpool game was spectacular, wasn't it? The the seven two loss against Aston Villa. Sorry, I'm not sure if you heard that coming. The seven two loss against Aston Villa. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I mean, I'll talk about it briefly. I mean, Aston Villa should get a hell of a lot of credit for playing really quite well, being awfully clinical in front of goal and dispatching basically all of the chances that they had. The issue, and this this is an article that someone wrote for the board for me, was basically Liverpool's system just completely fell to pieces and Jurgen Klopp sat there and did nothing. And that's what, from as someone who isn't, of course, a Liverpool fan, but Jurgen Klopp is my favourite manager and I do kind of have a soft spot for Liverpool too, is that's really disappointing to see because Jurgen Klopp is meant to be one of the best managers on the planet and he just sat there and kind of thought, oh, well, hopefully it'll sort itself out. And I understand that you'd have a belief in your system that you can turn it around nice. And I get that with Liverpool too, because Liverpool are this club that have, have had miraculous turnarounds. You only have to talk about Istanbul or the result kind of against Barcelona a couple of years ago. I 100% understand Anfield is a magical place. There are fairies and leprechauns and all sorts of stuff. Liverpool win matches. That's fine. The issue that I don't get... I refer to Shaqiri as a leprechaun. That's just unfair. (laughs) (laughs) The issue that I have, though, is you get to what? I think it was like 5-2, 6-2, and Liverpool are still making the same mistakes. And again, I know you don't want to hear this kind of, but I'll go there anyway. It's like, why did no one stand there and think, you know what, lads? Let's drop a little bit deeper. Let's stop kind of killing ourselves in this way and pressing too high and just getting caught over the top every single time. There was nothing particularly nuanced about how Aston Villa played that game. It was so simple. It was like, oh, get the ball, chip it over the top, we'll chase it, Liverpool will have to turn and run towards their own goal, and there were problems. And again, I like Liverpool's um, tactics insofar as I believe that the best way to defend is from pressing from the front. It makes for A, more entertaining football, B, you kind of grind teams down and C you create yourself opportunities from kind of defensive turnovers. I think that's great. The issue that you have is that you have to have a little bit of pragmatism when you go about this, because, and again, as we're, as we're at the end of the show, I'll go on a tangent. I used to play kind of at a, a fairly decent level. And I was in a team that liked to play a, quite an expansive 4-3-3. So we'd like to get the ball on the floor, play out the back, and we'd like to press high. The only issue we have with that is that some of the players were awfully slow. So, so slow, like oil tankers slow in terms of like turning circles and so on. And the issue that you had is that when our best centre-back wasn't there, all that would happen is that we'd press, the press would get broken, they'd chip the ball over the top. I'm not the fastest goalkeeper in the world, I'll hold my hands up and admit. I'd try and run out and kind of cover the ridiculous space between me and the defence. I wouldn't get there, they'd score. And again, it wasn't quite as simple against Liverpool, but there were elements of that. And again, if if people at a very low level of football can realise the mistakes that Liverpool were making, I don't quite understand why Jurgen Klopp either didn't see it or chose not to act. Yeah, yeah. just to kind of add my thought to it. It's kind of true in what you say. Liverpool's system is, and is a kind of plan from a defender, when you're when you're defending and you're kind of defending from a goal kick or a a kind of free kick in the opposition's half, your setup of your body is you kind of on a half turn already ready to run back. 
Whereas kind of Liverpool's front four never set up like that. They were permanently facing directly in front of them, ready to spring kind of an offside trap and try and uh, catch people offside. But the problem with kind of that is that, as you've kind of just said, when one of your defenders, and on that day it was kind of all of them, have an off day, that system doesn't work because all it takes is one player to be a split second off and then Ollie Watkins is in because he hasn't been caught offside because one player hasn't stepped up with the rest of the team. And recently, I think Joe Gomez has kind of been the scapegoat in the Liverpool defence. But I, I think Virgil van Dijk is kind of to, to, to look at and blame a tiny bit too because he has kind of let his performances slip a little bit. And I think that was something... I hope kind of Jurgen Klopp noticed that on a day when he's, one of his defenders is kind of not totally with it, he needs to kind of say, right, we'll drop a tiny bit back and we'll try and kind of use that um, system, but just a little bit deeper. Because then at least if it doesn't work, you're far enough back to kind of catch the player. But I mean, we'll, I guess we'll see against the really strong Everton side this weekend, kind of how uh, Jurgen Klopp has taken these two weeks uh, to kind of implement maybe a new kind of system or kind of tweak the system he's already had. The Everton game is going to be really interesting because they're playing really well and Liverpool haven't been that convincing in a lot of games that they've played this year. So yeah, I, I'm quite excited to see how that goes down because I think Carlo Ancelotti is, uh, there's no way I think about it. Carlo Ancelotti is an elite level manager. He's so, so good at his job and he signed a lot of really talented players like, I still can't get over the fact that Hamas Rodriguez plays for Everton. This is a club that, and I don't mean this disrespectfully towards Everton. This is just from kind of, I think, kind of quite a neutral standpoint. Everton aren't a, a particularly massive club in the grand scheme of things, in recent terms, at least. They're quite comparable to a lot of the other teams that finished in mid-table over recent years. And they, they've really sorted their act out and they have kind of, got their act together and they've invested in the right way. And now they've got a team that is able to compete kind of towards the top end of the table. So, yeah, I think that's going to be such an interesting, interesting game. That probably brings a close to this episode of the Pre-Match Pint podcast. My name was Luke James. As always, I was joined by Callum Ison, although Dan wasn't here because he's skiving. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Pre-Match Pint Pod, although we've kind of let that slide slightly somewhat over, over recent weeks. Um, and yeah, I think that pretty much sums everything up. In the description, you'll find links to all of our social media accounts. But until next time, stay safe, keep on side, and keep scoring.